past um, few uh, months, we've been talking about uh, the gospel, the good news, and uh, hopefully discovering that it's more than what we thought, uh, that it's not um, just uh, a short little message that you put in a little book that you pass on to somebody else, but although that's a nice summary, a beautiful summary, important summary, that there's much more uh, to the gospel than just uh, just that. And um, one of the good news things that we have this week is that uh, George and Sherry Mansfield, sorry, I'm embarrassing you guys, are back. Um, I'm not really sorry. I have to say that for some reason. But, uh, but they're back. Uh, they've been gone for a while. George's father's passed away, and they went to be with his dad uh, in that passing and, uh, and then to be there to help put everything or at least try to put things together, and there's so much to do afterwards. And so we're just we're we're uh, we're thankful you guys are back. And um, George, whenever you figure what continent you're on, we hope you'll be thankful to be back as well. George came, I think, from the states here, and then to China, and then back. So he's somewhere. But uh, we'll be glad when you feel like you're all the way here. But over the last few weeks, we've been kind of uh, camped in in uh, Ephesians. Uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And one of the reasons we've done that is because that is a, uh, a wonderful expression, the whole thing of, of what the gospel is and how the gospel is lived out uh, in the lives of people. One of the things we learned a few weeks back was that the gospel is good news, but it's not just good news for people. It's good news for all of creation. That, that God is restoring all of creation and not just us. We get to be a part of it, which is wonderful, but it's not as if God is just just concerned about us and not about everything. But the gospel is about God recreating everything, putting everything again right, back to where it should be, and in fact even better than where it initially was intended to be. We, we learned again that Jesus is the central figure of the good news, that restoration comes through Him. Um, in chapter 1 it talks about that He's that key point by which everything must connect to be restored and that it happens through Christ. We, we learn that, that when we embrace the gospel, that growing in the gospel includes growing in the knowledge of God. It's not just an event where we, we say this prayer or we invite Christ into our life and we say, well, it's done. But no, it's a growing process because what we think we know about God at that moment when we say yes to Christ is maybe very true, but there is so much more that God wants us to know about Him. And also that there's not just knowing about Him, but there's understanding about the hope that we have in the Gospel. The hope for now. The hope for the future. So that we don't give up. So that we don't just look around us and say, well, it looks like it's lost. Or we don't just look in the mirror and go, well, I'm past my best days. You know? But we look, at, we look and there's hope beyond what we see, what we experience, what we feel. Yeah, some of us have those moments in the mirror, don't we? So um, don't worry if you're young and you haven't gotten there yet. It's coming. Don't worry. And then, and then lastly, come into grips with the power of the gospel towards us. The, 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 the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to those who believe the gospel and experience it. And so oftentimes in our life we think, I just can't, or I'm not capable. And that may be true, you're not. But the power of the gospel is there, and it is able to accomplish what God wants in your life, through your life, in this world. It is not limited and in Ephesians chapter uh, 1 through 3, God, Paul is talking all about what God has done for creation, but especially for us. And he's doing it for a purpose. He's not just saying, you know, I've got nothing better to do than to write this letter. 
and uh, and send you off some nice little words that I hope will help you, you know, at some point, and you can remember and stuff like that. But he has a purpose. And as with most of the things when Paul writes a book, whether it's Romans or whether it's Colossians or others, right in the middle of the book, um, there's a flip point where he goes from talking about what God has done for you and he says, in light of this, in light of all this, this is how you're called to live. This is how you respond to that. And so the same happens in Ephesians chapter 4, is there's a calling to live a life worthy of God's calling on us. To live a life worthy of what God has done for us. And the reality is we're very unlikely to respond very much to God if we kind of go, yeah, it's been nice, God. It's, you know, there's been some really helpful things. Thanks a lot. What you did in the past was nice, and the few goodies along the way has been great. We're not going to live a life worthy. We're going to live um, our life and from time to time invite God to be a part as long as he goes along with our plan. And Paul's point in this is when you really understand the gospel and when you really understand what has happened to you through the good news that God's done, then when God calls you to live a life worthy, you go, yes. Finally, I get a chance to say thank you. Finally, I get a chance to do something that reflects a little bit of what God has done for me. I I love the phrase, and I learned it a long time ago at a Reformed church, guilt, grace, gratitude. And we'll talk a little bit about grace at the end here today. But guilt is where we start, isn't it? Grace is what God gives to us that we don't deserve, and life is now lived not, not because I have to, but because I want to say thank you. But until we remember what we're saying thank you for, we, we're not going to live very much into that life that is worthy of the gospel that we're called to. So Ephesians chapter 2 that was read by Dave really talks about three things and broad, showing us where we were, showing us what God did, and then showing us how he did it. Some of this, I don't want to say it's a repeat from what we've talked, but you, you'll, you'll go, oh yeah, I, I remember we talked a little bit about that. And uh, if that happens, don't turn off, just remember, sometimes it's good to remember you know, where we've been. Uh, one of the major verbs um, in, the, in the Old Testament especially is remember. Remember, remember. And there's a good reason God says remember, because we forget. And uh, so hopefully this is a chance for us to remember. And it talks about in this passage in verses 1 through 3, which are very graphic. It says this, you were dead. You lived in the sphere of rebellion against God. You contributed to the goal of the devil, which is the destruction of all things that God has made, as well as your own destruction. That you participate in that. That, And that if you read the New Testament, if you look at Jesus and you look at people who are possessed, they're always destroying themselves. They're always destroying what God has created, what God finds to be precious. You're, you're, you're living in that sphere of rebellion, which ultimately becomes self-destructive. You, you were driven by your own self-centeredness, your passion, your desires. You were about you in the past. That's all that life was about. You, and then ultimately, you, your rebellion and your destruction brought God's appropriate anger. And in the past, we've talked about God being angry. And for some of us, we might go, yes, finally do the good stuff. And for others of you, like, how can God be angry? But I want to suggest to you this. In light of the brokenness of our world, in light of what people do to each other, could you really worship a God who said, oh, just people, you know? It's just the way it is. It's no big deal that someone's life's been shattered. 
that someone for the rest of their life will live with this psychological or physical pain? Can you really worship a God? Do you really want to love a God who's impassionate? Who doesn't say, that makes me angry. It's not anger that's wrong, is it? It's what we do with our anger that becomes wrong. God is appropriately anger, angry at what he sees and what's going on in our life. You may look at this list and you may go, that doesn't look like me, Paul. You know, I don't feel dead. In fact, if I remember correctly, I had breakfast and talked to people and did the things. I don't, I don't feel dead at all. Uh, I feel actually c- quite alive, quite ready to, to live life and to do things that I always do. Um, but, but what this debt is talking about is talking about a spiritual death between you and God. It means that there's no appetite, no life of God in you. I mean, it doesn't mean that you maybe can't like the God or enjoy the God that, that you create or that we create in our society that, that does what we want for us and is handy and useful, but, but the real God? No, you're dead to Him. You know, we look back at, at our ancestors, you know, way, way back, Adam and Eve, and when they chose to say, God, we think you're holding out on us. We think there's something good that you're not giving us, God. And they chose not to trust God. There was a death that happened. The Bible said, God, God says, as soon as you eat it, you're going to die. And the next thing after they ate the fruit, they, they talked to you. They didn't look dead. But, but when soon as God got close, they ran away. They hid. They were afraid. There was a deadness in their relationship with God. And ultimately, that led to physical death and dying. So although you may be very physically alive today, in the past or maybe even today, there is a spiritual death between you and God. There is not life there at all. There's no appetite for God. There's no hunger. There's no sense of this is what life is all about, knowing God. And then, you know, it's not just the fact that we're dead to God, but it's the way that we live. And and you might go, you know, Paul, I I do a lot of good things, and I, I don't disagree with you. But I would say this, all of us do a lot of things, whether we intend to or not, that are bad and destructive. We live in a world that, in many ways, exploits people who are not as rich, not as powerful, and who uh, basically have them in almost servitude, if not servitude. And whether we know it or not, we oftentimes buy the clothes that they make or buy the things that they put together. We don't know it. We're not trying to, but you know what? Our actions are oftentimes destructive to other people. And, you know, when God looks at that, he, he doesn't just go and say, oh, you know, no big deal. His heart breaks because he did not make people for that purpose. But he made people to be free. You know, sometimes I think of it maybe like this is, uh, I don't know, you probably all, if you're not still here, no teenagers here yet, they're all gone, I think. But, you know, sometimes when we're teenagers, we do things that are, are stupid, don't we? We go off and we do things that are destructive and stupid and we don't think about anybody else, we think about us. And sometimes when we get to be older, we go, we think and go, you know, that was incredibly destructive. That was incredibly hurtful. And I think sometimes on a spiritual, on a life level, that's the way we live, isn't it? And that's what Paul's saying here. Is, you know, whether you, This is the way you used to live, and, and for some, this is the way still we do live, in ways that are destructive and harmful, that hurt people, whether we intend to, whether we see it, but are destructive because we're thinking about ourselves. And instead of the idea of people flourishing, of helping people become all that they can be, which is God's desire, we align ourselves with what is the devil's desire, which is to destroy. To only think about yourself, to make 
what I want most important. And we prove we're dead. We're dead to God. You know, the more we see about what we're like, what this passage says we're like, the more the brightness and the beauty of the gospel becomes true. The more we, we come to grips with the fact that God is appropriately angry when people, you, me, anyone, lives in a way that's destructive to themselves and to others because they are precious to Him, then the more the gospel becomes wonderful, becomes exciting, becomes hopeful, becomes life-giving and beautiful. You know, when we discover that there's no way out, that we're helpless, when we realize that we're as good as dead, hopeless, and we realize that we didn't even know it, we were clueless. And then we see what God does. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's life-changing. It's perspective-changing. Let me ask you a question. What do you do when someone who, despite all of your efforts and all of your work on their behalf, uh, all that you've done to treat them well, treats you with contempt, like you don't exist? Who live counter to your values? Who go around living self-destructively to, to destroy themselves and destroy others? Who only thinks about themselves? And who resists anyone that has something good for them that might be something different than what they want? And who bring upon themselves the appropriate anger by their deeds of those around them and slowly sink further and further away from relationships with God and with other people. And who look at other people seemingly as objects to be exploited. So the relationship is, what can I get from you? And as soon as I get that, I leave. What what do you do with people like that? Because it's not as if we don't encounter those type of people. My guess is those are the type of people that, at best, we stay as far away as possible from. At worst, we want them to fall in the pit that they've made. You know? We want them... You go ahead. You experience the destruction that you're sowing. We write them off. We let them go. What does God do to people like that? Maybe a better question. What does God do to us? Because that's us. And the beautiful thing about this passage is the apostle tells us this, that God does not write us off. God does not just let us go on and say, go on and get exactly what you deserve. But God does something wonderful and amazing. If you read this passage um, at verse 4, there's this beautiful little short word, three letters, that always ought to make you think and always ought to make you go, yes, or oh no. It's that word, but. It's that word that means, here's been the flow of all things that have been going on. And and if you read 1 through 3, it's not a very pretty picture. But. Something's going to change. And that but is this. Is God who is so rich in mercy and who loved us so much does something. The nature and the motivation of God is, is exposed as someone who loves. Even the unlovely. Someone who sees someone who's dug in a pit for themselves in which they cannot be rescued and has mercy and pulls them out. Even though they don't deserve it. And maybe sometimes even because in spite of the fact that they don't ask for it. God stands in great contrast to us. And it stands to His love and mercy in great contrast also to His anger, His appropriate anger. His love is more beautiful because God isn't just impassioned and goes, well, yeah, yeah, okay, but I think I'll be nice. 
Now, God has every reason to leave us there. And he says, no, I love you too much. My mercy is so deep and so powerful and so wonderful that I do not want to leave you there. Even though that's where you deserve to be. And he pulls us up. God is rich in mercy and love. And that's the message. That is the nature of who God is. And His mercy raises us to new life. And that's just like the resurrection, isn't it? He, he, just like He talks about in this passage where Jesus was raised from the dead, so it says, the connection, so God, as He raised Jesus, so He raises you and me to new life who accept and believe the gospel. You know, His mercy and love has now seated us in the heavenly places in some way, shape, or form. We have the privilege of experiencing that position we will one day know which is being seated with Christ. We have been exalted. Jesus was exalted. He was not only raised, but He was exalted to heaven. And in some way, shape, or form, God says, you are also exalted with Christ. That's who you are. That's where you live. And then it goes on and it says this wonderful thing that says that God's mercy and His love has basically made us, and I hope this isn't a bad phrase for you, but kind of like a trophy. You know, We are kind of like something wonderful that God has done that... He doesn't put us on the shelf, but think, go with the analogy with me. Something beautiful, some trophy that, that he's done that he puts on the shelf. And when anyone in creation, and that means both seen and unseen, questions God, questions his mercy, questions his love, he, he does this. He says, look over here. Look at where they were. Look at the self-destruction that they did to themselves. Look at the fact that they were dead. Look at the fact that they didn't deserve anything, but... But I raised them up because I loved them. I, I was merciful to them, and I restored them. Look at them. And you know what? No more questions. I mean, not that they can't, they, they, it's not that they couldn't have questions. They just don't anymore. Because we are the demonstration of the beauty of God's love and His mercy, where anger appropriately was. That's who we are. And when anyone questions God, He points to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I would point to us. <laughs> but that's probably because I don't understand the, the love and the mercy of God very well. That He would point to us. And it says that God is loving, God is merciful, but, but also that God acts in all of these things according to His grace. You know, He doesn't do what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we've earned. But He gives us what He wants to give us by His grace. In fact, He gives us the opposite of what we learned. You are made alive by the grace of God. You are set in the heavenly places as a believer by the grace of God. You get to experience your future to some degree now. And you become the trophy of God. You know, the symbol of His victory, of His goodness, of His beauty by grace. And you are united to Jesus Christ as Savior by the grace of God. This passage reminds us that it's all about what God has done for us. Grace means God did it alone. We didn't do it. I want to read to you uh, a little bit. I think a good summary of this is in uh, this really big book that's green, uh, which is a commentary uh, by Lincoln on Ephesians. He says this, it's worth standing back from the flow and the thought of the underlying uh, completeness um, 
the completeness of the contrast between the pre-Christian past and the Christian present, which shapes the major part of this passage. The movement from then to now is a movement from death to resurrection life, from a lifestyle characterized by trespasses, sins, sensual indulgence, and disobedience to one characterized by good works. From this present world age to the heavenly realm, and from bondage to the forces which rule the world to the victory with Christ above hostile powers. It is a movement from the sphere of selfish autonomy to union with Christ, from domination by the devil to being controlled from start to finish by God, from what humanity is by nature to what it becomes by grace, and from the liability to God's wrath to experience His mercy, love, and kindness and grace. You see, all the stuff that we messed up in the past, all the death and destruction we brought, God in His mercy and grace not only covered and made up for, but added so much more to and raised us with Christ and gave us life with Christ, gave us a future with Christ. You see again why Christ is so important. Not just the side, not just a little bit of Christianity. Everything connects to Him. It's all because of Christ. The translation that we was read this morning by Dave, I think, puts this really well in, in verse 8. It says this, God saved you by His grace when you believed. It's a great little phrase. It means that He rescued you. My rescue, your rescue, the rescue of every person and all people who are ever rescued is an act of God. Not an act of my will or my wisdom, or my effort, but is an act initiated by God, accomplished by God, paid for by God, and assured by God. Grace is unearned favor. It's getting something we don't deserve. You know, uh, Whether we like the picture of who we were in the past and whether we, that we earned God's anger by our acts, the reality is, is we've received something completely different instead of that. But grace can only be received. It can't be worked for. It can't be earned. And this little end of the passage talks very well about this. It's, it's a gift. You know, it's not something that you can, you know, you can earn. It's not something that uh, um, you can do anything about. It's something only that you can receive and say thank you for. And it doesn't happen because of our efforts. It happens because of the wonderful kindness of God. It's a rescue from death, from the domination of sinfulness and our sinful nature, from a life of disobedience. It's, it's freedom from the entanglements of, of this world and of the devil that wants to ultimately destroy. But it's, it's a rescue from something, but it's also a rescue to something, this passage says. And, and it's a beautiful phrase. It's a rescue to being God's masterpiece. God's beautiful work. You know, grace doesn't just pull us out of the pit, pit, doesn't pull us just out of the trash heap and say, okay, there you go. Now you're free from all that stuff, but you're still, well, you're still kind of what you were. Grace pulls us out, and then God starts to make and create in us a masterpiece. And it talks about, He, he gives us something to do. He gives us what is called good works. Not to earn salvation, but to live out of this beautiful salvation. To be those who do good. But... We are ultimately being made into God's 
Masterpiece. Now, I don't know about you, but my guess is if you're looking at me, you might be thinking, that's God's masterpiece? And, and let me tell you this. You know, you know, I don't know about much about art except I watch my daughter do art a little bit, but I know this, that masterpieces don't just show up in like 30 seconds, okay? They take time, okay? Take a lot of effort. They take creating and molding. And here's the reality is, is I may be, I, at best, I might be half finished, okay? Maybe not even that much. I'm not, you know, some of us might be a third finished or two-thirds finished or whatever. But you know what? Masterpiece is a process. But God says, you know what? I am working on you as my masterpiece. You will be my masterpiece. And someday in heaven, in a figurative way, God will put us up and say, look at this beautiful masterpiece. That is you. That's who you're going to be. That's who you are. Is that who you feel you are? Is that what you think? Because as I told the Alpha group uh, yesterday when we did, you know, the reality is, which I don't like very much personally, is we always live out of who we think we are. And if you think you're a masterpiece, you know what? God's masterpiece, you live that way. And if you think you're just someone that kind of got pulled out of the trash heap and kind of hanging around and not ever going to be much of anything, you live that way. And if you think you're still in the trash heap, you live that way. And God says, you're my masterpiece. When you believe, when you believe the good news of the gospel, when you say yes to Jesus, I need you. Grace rushes in, forgiveness comes, washing, cleansing, and purifying, but it's not finished because God is still finishing us to be his masterpiece, to be all that we can be for his glory. We become God's masterpiece by grace. God does it. We become his masterpiece by doing the good works that God has laid before us in advance to do. In other words, by discovering them. Um, there was a, uh, Eugene Peterson had a great phrase that when I've done it has really helped me. He says, the beautiful thing about God is when you wake up in the morning, God, God has a day for you. He has things for you to do in that day. And the great thing about life is you get to wake up and go, okay, God, we, I get to discover what, you, what, what do you have for me? What are the good works? that you have for me to be able to grow me into that masterpiece. And, and some of those things we do, and we do well, some of them eh, we miss, some we don't do very well, and we get tired and grumpy and you know, nasty, and we go to bed, thankfully. You know. And the God starts to fix the mess we made about the masterpiece. And then while we're sleeping, God prepares the next day for us. So when we wake up, we get to live into that becoming that masterpiece. Again, we don't create our day. God does. Whether we live in it or not will be decided based on what we do and based on who we think we are, based on what God has done for us in Christ. God saved you by His grace when you believed. Believing in Jesus is the good news that you need, and it's the thing that you need to do. Knowing about Jesus is a wonderful thing. But what the gospel becomes active in our lives is when we believe. And then God starts to restore all things, including me. It's when we realize that I need this, and we say yes. Do you believe? If so, remember what God has done by His grace and who He's making you. If you haven't yet, 
then ask yourself, what is holding me back from knowing this God who's rich in love, incredibly wonderful in mercy, and who wants to make me a beautiful masterpiece? Not just in a way that he'll be able to boast about, but in a way that I will go, this is good. This is what I was made for. This is what I want. God invites you to know his grace, to believe, to say yes. Jesus, I need you. I want you. Free me. Give me life. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, sometimes it's, it's just clear that we need to remember the bad news about us before we can remember the good news, before we can embrace even the good news about you. We thank you that, that you are rich in mercy and love. Even though your, your anger was very appropriate at what we've done and the way we've lived and the people we've hurt. Father, we thank you that you give us your grace, that you offer us this great good news. And Lord, I pray for each person here today that they would either live in that grace because they have received Christ or that they would say yes and believe and embrace. Thank you that you meet us at the deepest place of who we are. Thank you that you take our questions and you give us hope and you direct us back to the goodness of who you are. Lead us, Lord, to reflect on these things and to live into this new reality, not just for our good, but for the good of your glory and also the good of other people who need to see and hear that God is good and loving and forgiving and gracious. And Father, remind us as we encounter people that are like what is described here, that are worthy of our anger, that even though you could have passed us over, you didn't. Help us to live into this gospel of giving grace, no matter what people do with it. Lead us, we pray, into this life. In Jesus' name, amen.